Hi, you're listening to You Don't Need Permission, a podcast about organizing for revolutionary change. My name is Joshua. I'm your host. Each episode, I bring you an interview with uh, an experienced activist or organizer. They tell their story about how they got started and what kind of work they're doing, hopefully in order to educate and inspire you because you don't need permission to start building a better world. You Don't Need Permission is a member of the Channel Zero network of podcasts. Please stay tuned after the interview to hear a cool bit from another show on the Channel Zero network. My guest this episode is Franz. Franz was on the podcast a while back talking about tenant organizing. She's also the host of Doomer v. Bloomer. And, well, she's one of the hosts, and uh, she's the Bloomer host, not the Doomer host. And uh, I highly recommend Doomer v. Bloomer as a podcast. Check it out. Um, Just coming at viewing current events, uh, I suppose Marxist theory and critical analysis uh, from... uh, one very positive point of view and one kind of negative point of view. So it's uh, that perfect balance of hope and despair. So this episode, uh, we're doing something a little bit different, not talking about organizing directly, but I wanted to uh, ask Franz is of everybody that I know, you know, one of the most educated about how economics works. <laughs> and um, one thing I wanted to, to to bring to all of you listening is just an idea of when we talk about revolutionary change, uh, often people push back and they say, well, that's maybe too much or too ambitious or like what's wrong with just reforming the current system, making it more like Nordic countries. Like, why isn't that enough? Why do you have to like go too far? And um, I think there's a lot of evidence that capitalism can't be reformed uh and has to be abolished and so we're gonna talk about that now hell yeah (laughs) yeah yeah well yeah thanks for having me on and since you mentioned channel zero i just wanted to say one funny thing when um yeah welcome to the network it's it's great to have you doomer v bloomer is a fellow channel zero network podcast um when uh someone suggested your show in like the group chat there's like a two-week you know period where people can check out the show and raise concerns or whatever and so someone was like hey we're reaching the two-week mark does anyone else have any comments and then i remember someone responded like do they need permission to join the network (laughs) like (laughs) you don't need permission so i just thought that was funny (laughs) um but yeah on the on the topic of the show or the episode um yeah, I think it's really important to understand on sort of a like theoretical, practical, historical level how capitalism actually operates as a system. If we want to start talking about how we organize to dismantle it, how we organize to create a better world, having sort of, yeah, this, this basic understanding of how capitalism functions so that we can start, um, yeah, t- taking it apart. <laughs> Yeah, it's so, really I, I mean, let's just dive right into it. Uh, why can't capitalism be reformed? Yeah, I mean, I would say, like, at a fundamental level, capitalism is a political and economic mode that is dependent on the endless growth imperative. Um, so you probably, if you've heard that before, you've probably heard it in relationship to, like, degrowth or, you know, green critiques of capitalism or, you know, 
you've heard mainstream economists talking about, you know, the GDP, like the line must grow up, like we need this sort of constant growth, constant expansion um, in order to, in order for, you know, capitalism to continue to function. Why? Um, and yeah, that that is exactly the question is, okay. is why is that the case? Um, and like fundamentally, it's it's competition, right? Like capitalism is made up of these different firms, you know, corporations that just act as profit maximizing machines. Um, you know, capitalism, you know, operates by um, producing things at low cost and selling them for higher cost and trying to, you know, outcompete and push other other firms out of the market so that, you know, your firm can can sell the most, make the most money, be have the most power. Um, so, you know, within the system of competition, each corporation is always looking for ways to minimize their costs and maximize the revenue that they're taking in. Um, the corporations that do these two things most effectively are able to outcompete other corporations. Um, this out competition looks like, you know, having more money to buy raw materials, being able to upgrade machinery or technology to produce more efficiently, you know, have better trained workers, you know, consolidate competition through, you know, buying out your competitors. So all of these things sort of add up, like when you have more money, you're able to make more money through a more efficient process. And the firms that don't keep up, you know, they go under, they cease to exist because they're not able to um, make money on the market. And so you have this sort of like constant competition that's pushing every single individual corporation to maximize, maximize, maximize. And anyone that doesn't keep up ceases to be a capitalist. So on a large scale in general, like to give like a practical kind of example, say one person owns and runs a widget factory. They're the capitalist. Mm -hmm. They employ people to, to produce widgets, right? And out of the benevolence of their heart, they decide to pay twice what everybody else is paying to their workers. Mm -hmm. And and they care about the environment, so they, they like go above and beyond. And they're still making money, and they're still making a profit, mm -hmm. but basically... But eventually their widgets like are going to cost more money, right? Because they're their production costs have gone so far up, they have to make up for that somehow. They have to at least break even, yeah. right? And so, you know, maybe that cost gets, you know, put onto the consumers and their product costs more money, or they have to find some other place to cut corners, or they just can't afford to keep running their operation. They go out of business altogether. Yeah. Um, so or when their cost of their goods goes up, then people stop buying, and then that's when they go under. So the only way to stay in business is to be always getting more and more efficient because somebody else also is getting more and more efficient. Right. Because the, yeah, capitalism as an economic system is fundamentally premised on competition and competition between capitalists. Now, a lot of folks, I think, would even at this point be on board and agree and say, yeah, this is correct. But what about just like severe government regulations to to prevent like ecological disaster to guarantee workers' rights, things like that. Why Why isn't that sufficient? Right. So, yeah, we, you've already sort of critiqued the, like, it's not really possible for individual capitalists, individual corporations to just say, we're going to try to be more ethical, we're not going to pollute, we're going to be nice to our workers, um, and just make a change that way. Because when it happens on the level of the individual firm, those firms get outcompeted. But, you know, theoretically, you could talk about this happening, um, you know, on the scale of, of, you know, the entire capitalist economy, or at least within specific states. Um, 
you know, states can attempt to set the sort of parameters, the rules um, in which this competition can take place. But like these reforms can only kind of set the limits on how this it's they're not changing how this process fundamentally works. They're not getting rid of the endless growth imperative. It's not fundamentally challenging this like competition imperative. It's just sort of trying to like put a box around how far that competition can go. And, you know, corporations that are trying to maximize their profit are always constantly on the lookout for how they can game the system, how they can earn a slight advantage, how they can find the loopholes. Yeah. So, you know, there's only so much you can do to try and set these limits where those limits won't be continually pushed back. And that's assuming that the state even wants to or is capable of setting those limits in the first place. Like, one, capitalism is global. It's a global system. And so there's only so much power any individual state, any individual government has to put regulations on capitalism because there's, you know, capital flight, you know, corporations can go just find a different country to operate out of. And it's very unlikely you're going to get every single world government on board to, you know, set the same tax regulations or whatever in the same year to prevent that. And if they, uh, if they leave... America, because we have some worker protections and go to a country with fewer worker protections, um, the politicians who are currently in power will be blamed for corporations leaving because Mm -hmm. of that. (laughs) That makes no sense, but it's what people do. And so in order for them to like stay getting reelected, like it incentivizes them making corporations happy so that Mm -hmm. so that they stay here because like if people lose their job, they're going to vote out whoever's in office right now. Like, can you talk yeah. a little bit more about how that works? Just because it seems like there's like an intentionality that, that corporations like are gaming that system too. Like when they, when they play politics, um, I think like people can easily see how corporations influence politicians by being able to give them money and people blame, um, you know, the idea of uh, corporate personhood for like being able to like pump money into politicians. But I think what people don't see is that there's a whole other game of like money in politics being played based on like, like the threat of things like, like not investing into in, in mm-hmm. jobs or, or, or building new things. Yeah. So I think, you know, when we were talking about, like the role of large corporations um, in, you know, setting government policy, where I think the common analysis of that is oftentimes very sort of surface level. It still fundamentally views like capitalism and the state as like these two separate entities and the state, you know, has is is democratic and, you know, has the workers and the voters interests at heart. Um, But I, you know, to the extent that the US is democratic, it's not in the economic sphere. Um, and I think the power of the capitalist class within the government goes beyond just sort of, you know, lobbying power or, you know, campaign finance stuff, (laughs) um, in that, you know, the state relies on the continued functioning of capitalism to maintain its own power, um, and is thus structurally motivated to only reform capitalism in a very limited scope, um, and in ways that actually you know, preserve the long-term interests of capitalism, um, you know, and sometimes the long-term interests of capitalism are at odds with the short-term interests of individual capitalists. And that's where you can see some tension between the state and individual capitalists, you know, specific industries or sectors. Um, So are you, like, mm -hmm. like the state 
maybe pushing harder for environmental regulations because it's actually in the long-term interest of capitalism for there not to be a climate apocalypse, but it's in the short-term interest of every capitalist right now for you to not worry about climate apocalypse and just maximize your profits right now. Yeah, and I think that's where you see that tension between, you know, Biden's sort of doing some things. Like, I haven't, you know, read his new, like, climate policy or whatever in depth, but from what I've heard, it's it's doing something, you know, it's not <laughs> nothing. It's more than Trump, which, you know, <laughs> I guess you could say, but it's not enough, you know, it's it's not anything that would actually fundamentally challenge the power of, you know, fossil fuel executives and so on. Um, but yeah, like, and what I mean by like, cap- like the state relies on the continued functioning of capitalism is capitalism is how all of, you know, our goods, our necessities, our food is produced and distributed it's organized through this system of capitalism um capitalists are responsible for organizing managing and planning how resources get produced and distributed um and the state rely like needs that to continue functioning in order to like maintain their system of governance maintain their power um and also, the tax revenue, you know, to the extent that the government actually taxes corporations, that is a significant portion of, of their tax revenue as well. Um, oh, yeah. And so, like, I think to to the extent that the state has historically stepped in to provide, you know, reforms on capitalism, it has either been to protect the long-term interests of capital or not unrelatedly, as a sort of, like, unrest insurance. Like, oh no, the people are getting too mad, they're organizing too much. If we don't do anything, they might just go and start a revolution, you know? And I think that's a big driving force behind, like, why the the New Deal happened, right? Is because the labor movement was so strong, so well organized, um, that the state thought that if concessions weren't passed, that if you know, the balance of power between workers and capitalists wasn't sort of compromised a little bit that workers might have just tried to overthrow the entire system. And they had been trying, right? And this was sort of like post-Russian Revolution and, you know, Red Scare era and so on. So a lot of that was was compromised. And a lot of that was, again, looking out for the long-term health of capitalism as an entire system, even if some individual capitalists or most individual capitalists would have preferred Um, less worker protections, um, weaker unions, and so on. So um, one other, I think, pretty common thing that I hear from people is like, like, well, one of the solutions is is for people to like buy from small businesses instead of big corporations mm-hmm. because small businesses are less efficient at at, at the min maxing games that the big corporations are playing because small businesses are you know, destroying the climate less than, than large corporations. But that's not, to me, a tenable solution uh, for mm-hmm. a lot of reasons, but I'm, I'm curious to hear why. But, but my first thought is, is small businesses still can't operate without big firms. Like, I think about, like, the amount of stuff where, like, I work that is shipped in from, like, across the world or across the country and, and ordered on online from you know corporations like amazon it feels like like mm-hmm. no matter like how kind of a small business owner you are one, one of the first things is that like you're still giving money to jeff bezos just for just to to stay in business you know mm-hmm. so like that flow of capital still is constantly going up to the top it, yeah it's really sad when you 
try to order a book from your like local bookstore and then you find out that they just when you placed your order they just ordered it from amazon (laughs) it's like well (laughs) i guess at least some of that money stayed in the community i don't know but yeah it's again it's this problem of like capitalism is a global economic system and so if we actually want to uh, come up with solutions, come up with alternatives, come up with ways of dismantling capitalism, we also have to sort of look at look at things on a global scale. And I, I think there's ways in which like local solutions or focusing on the local can and is really important within, you know, leftist anarchist organizing. I think if we're talking about, you know, building a world that is like fundamentally more democratic, that is, you know, based on everyday people, you know, making their own decisions within their communities about how their lives will be run. A lot of that starts, does start at the local, you know, it starts with meeting your neighbors, it starts with, you know, building relationships within your community. Um, It starts with figuring out like, what resources do we have here that can be used before we have to, you know, start talking about shipping things from halfway across the world. There's a lot of stuff where it makes sense to start at and focus on the small scale, but we can't stop there. And we also can't just sort of glorify or romanticize anything that is local, because again, a lot of, you know, these local businesses are local businesses. They're still fundamentally capitalist enterprises that are constrained by the same grow or die um, imperative as larger firms um and you know there's some degree to which maybe some small businesses are actually you know because of community support or whatever able to you know act more ethically or be nicer to their workers and and still manage to stay afloat um but that would definitely be the exception rather than the rule Mm -hmm. you know um Plenty, like lots of local businesses, especially like restaurants, operate on incredibly thin margins, meaning, you know, the difference between um, the income and the cost for maintaining the business is very small. Um, So, you know, so they focus on externalizing those costs. And when I'm talking about externalizing costs, I mean, you know, making someone else pay for the cost of running your business, which is what all capitalist businesses do. Um, So this, you know, can look like relying on uh, tipping to pay your workers, right? Plenty of states in the U.S. have a tipped minimum wage where you don't even have to be paid minimum wage if you are a server in a restaurant. Um, So they're externalizing their labor costs on the customers. Um, I think small and local businesses also get away with breaking labor regulations a lot more because, you know, I, I remember... I worked for like Target for a while, um, which is a big corporation. And like, I would get in trouble if I didn't take my lunch on time and it's all automated in the system and it's all calculated and they Mm -hmm. have it in their database because they know that if they get caught, like, you know, violating those laws of, you know, not giving people their lunch breaks on time, then there can be this huge, you know, class action lawsuit where, you know, how many, however many Target workers there are across the U.S. could like come together and make a stink out of this. But when you're a local business that has like 10 employees or however many employees, it's not likely you're going to get caught, you know, for doing a little bit of wage theft. You know, if you ask your workers, oh, stay, stay like 30 minutes later and you're off the clock. And if no one complains about it, just like no one knows about it. Mm -hmm. 
And then they oftentimes will try to, you know, manipulate or, you know, use the sort of small business rhetoric to, you know, make points about how we're a family, we're part of the community, oh, we just can't afford to pay you fairly, and so on. So, you know, a lot of times that, you know, local charm actually gets abused to in order to increase the, like, level of exploitation going on within these small businesses. So, yeah, I think small businesses overall, to the extent that they they are better or more ethical is, again, the exception, <laughs> exception to the rule, not, you know, the rule for how businesses function. So I think, like, that's pretty clear, like, on why shopping local isn't enough to save us, why reform isn't enough to save us. So, like, when we talk about building revolutionary change, what does that look like? Like, what, what does the transition look like? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Good question. Um, <laughs> and uh, maybe that's a question for, like, a whole episode on its own. Mm-hmm. But, like, just, like, to you, what does that look like kind of in as, as brief a summary as possible? Yeah. I mean, so, like, you know, recognizing that, you know, capitalism is built off of, you know, this imperative of competition and constant growth, I think, you know, building alternatives to capitalism that fundamentally, like, challenge those two things is going to be really important. So finding new ways to relate to each other on a community level, on a global level, and, you know, not just in our social lives, but also in our political lives and our economic lives, um, finding ways to really emphasize and, and draw out those human capacities for cooperation um, for, you know, working together to share common resources mm-hmm. and make decisions collectively over where those resources go and how they're distributed rather than, you know, sort of trusting, you know, the 1% of people uh, or, you know, 1% of 1% or, or whatever the best way to talk about this is to plan our economy for us, which is essentially how it works right now. You know, people always like to say, like, communism is a planned economy, whereas capitalism is unplanned. It's like, no, we just have, like, a specific class of people that are planning for us <laughs> yeah. in a competitive way. An unelected class of people. Yeah, like, un- exactly. An unaccountable class of people. So I think some some of what you said like it just made me think of like we think of capitalism as like our economic system right but it also like mm-hmm. like influences all of our social relationships i remember mm-hmm. like sometime at the beginning of the shutdowns like people um posting on facebook about you know hey like all these people that you see getting angry that they can't go shopping or go to a restaurant like it's because like this is what their social relationships have been reduced to they believe that their like role in life is to like go to work and be productive and earn a paycheck Mm -hmm. and then spend that money buying things. And then like all of their relationships with their friends are like mediated through some kind of transactional relationship where like, like the only things that they do with their friends are experiences that, that cost money and make somebody else money. And so like what I'm hearing you say is like kind of the first steps is like trying to just disconnect from that find ways to relate to people that don't cost money. Yeah. Like get to know your neighbors and and have experiences with them that that don't buy into the idea that all relationships are transactional. Absolutely. Yeah, I think like recognizing that capitalism is 
this totalizing system. Like it's this sort of constant, like part of this infinite growth imperative is constantly trying to bring in like more spheres of life, more spheres of existence into the realm of the market, into the realm of capitalism and capitalist production. So capitalism is always looking for new ways to, you know, turn turn every social interaction we could possibly have into a commercial interaction mm -hmm. to reduce our whole lives to business transactions and, and nothing more than that. Like something is only valuable to the extent that it's making money for a capitalist and anything you do that doesn't make money for a capitalist or like God forbid actually, you know, impede the ability of capitalists to make money is just like not acceptable to the capitalist class. Like, one more example going back to like the small business thing is I think a lot of like local small businesses have a huge stake in gentrification and, you know, promoting, um, you know, policies and changes within cities um, that increasingly make them inaccessible to poor people and, and focus the city um, towards producing and maximizing consumption rather than any other anything else. Um, so, you know, whether that be, you know, local restaurants, local retail businesses, um, real estate developers, um, you see this trend in so many cities. Like I see this where I live of, you know, public space. You're only allowed to exist in public space if you're buying something. You know, homeless people are criminalized for, for merely existing in public space. Um, or if you're skateboarding, you're... A criminal or if you're loitering you're a criminal or if you know any of these activities these communal non-commercial activities become criminalized or at least you know frowned upon sanctioned um unless you're a high-income consumer who's gonna mm -hmm. spend all of their money at like one of the 12 antique shops that's on the same street <laughs> like yeah. who does that <laughs> Um, well, yeah. To me, the most like the most like visceral like image of that is like the the street where I work has a bunch of patios where people with money are drinking outside, and two blocks mm -hmm. away there's a library and there's some picnic tables in front of it, and there's always people without money drinking in front of the library, and they're constantly getting arrested. Yeah. For the crime of doing the exact same thing that the people with money are doing two blocks away, it's like as. Like how how is one of those detrimental to the society and the other one isn't? You know, like they're right. they're doing the same activity, but since one of them is like making this gentrifying business, you know, make money, like that's acceptable. And then the other one, you know, they're drinking like a forty steel reserve they got for a buck fifty. Like <laughs> uh -huh. that's not really making anybody rich mm -hmm. in the neighborhood who might like spend money on influencing local policy or things like that. Right. Um. So that's somehow illegal and they try to say it's because it's like bad to be drinking outside i don't know right you know yeah and i think this contrast has become like so stark like in the covid era because all of these restaurants are creating these like outdoor patio spaces in order to get around you know indoor dining limitations and they're just extending onto the sidewalks like these are private businesses expanding onto public space um, and being allowed to do it to make money off of it. Yet, you know, where this is happening in my city and plenty of other cities across the country, we have on the books like a no sit, no lie order. Like people are not allowed to sit on the sidewalks yeah. unless some private business has put a table there and then you're allowed to sit there. Yeah. But if you're just trying to exist in public space and not spend any money, you can't do that. And so I think, yeah, part of 
this prax like part of the praxis that this implies is like the reclaiming of of public space you know the fighting back to like have the sidewalks be a place where human beings are are walking past each other and communicating with each other and having friendly relationships with their neighbors and their community members um fighting to like maintain parks and not have them you know be closed down and replaced with like private commercial space uh fighting back against you know new high income developments whether that be you know retail restaurants or you know high income rental housing or investment properties whatever it is um finding ways to like push back against commodification and push back against like the constantly encroaching like commercialization of our uh everyday lives yeah And I feel like these particular fights can often feel like really Sisyphean. Uh, Mm -hmm. So since you're the bloomer, uh, (laughs) how do we stay like, like, how do we maintain a positive outlook while like fighting battles, many of which we lose, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, remembering that it's, you know, a marathon, not a sprint. So any given battle, like if we even if we lose it's a learning experience mm-hmm. hopefully it's you know i think every organizing project you get involved in is a chance for you to learn how to be a better organizer it's a chance for the group you're working with to learn how to work with each other better um and so just you know being able to to evaluate your own capacities and figure out like okay you know maybe in my city i want to you know fight gentrification for example like figure out like who's the best target what's the most effective way to challenge them and if you're not always successful like it's not the end of the world just you know pick yourself back up and move on to the next battle but also you know finding you know campaigns finding battles that are winnable because especially on a local level i think a lot more of this stuff is winnable than people think it is before they try and even a small victory like getting one you know city code change or getting one business to change their policy um getting you know one apartment you know one landlord to stop you know stealing money from their tenants like it's a relatively small scheme in the grand scope of capitalism but it on it's such a uh a moral boost to even just have small wins that can help push you forward onto you know what's the next battle what's the next battle how do we grow from here yeah because a lot of this is is figuring it out as we go it's sometimes reinventing the wheel ideally when we can learning from other groups current and past that are doing the same types of work um but yeah allowing yourself to celebrate your wins you know like even if it's small saying like pat yourself on the back like we did something maybe it wasn't the complete destruction of capitalism but that's something (laughs) to build too you know this is somewhere between nothing and the complete destruction of capitalism and what's the next step yeah (laughs) okay um yeah no i think that that's like uh a really positive i i always try to end on a positive note very specifically because like people mm-hmm. can tell stories and and sometimes the stories aren't like things that they won but hopefully they're things that they learned and yeah um and so for those of you listening if um you know hopefully this is shedding some light on like i think why why we talk about social revolution and the idea of the abolition of capital and also just like still like I said, you know, like I say every every week in the intro, you don't need permission to start building a better world. Like we we can do simple things to like 
decommodify our lives and like have relationships with people that aren't transactional. And even those simple things are like fighting capitalism in our own way. And we can do big things where we're organizing to stop a luxury condo from being developed or stop mm-hmm. a park from being shut down or whatever. And like, we can do bigger things like, like getting our city to start pulling money away from their police departments and, mm-hmm. uh, and, um, and everything in between is still, is still doing some kind of work. And I, I, the way I like to think of it to stay positive is, um, if you look at, at the development of capitalism, you can point to, um, England in the 15th and 16th century, but it didn't become this, this global totalizing thing until really, um, the 1800s. So that's a period of like literally hundreds of years of it developing. So I feel like people want to point to this revolution that's going to happen in the future. And like, I would argue that the revolution started like roughly in the 1840s and we're just like in the middle of it right now, you know, hopefully halfway through it right now. And, uh, and just like building that change that like is, is the work required to eventually like move into the next phase of, of human development, 10,000 years of peace and prosperity. Right. (laughs) Yeah. When we look historically, I think it's super easy to see, you know, either whether it's like the shift from feudalism to capitalism or any sort of like revolutionary change as just, oh, that was just a thing that happened. It was just a blip in history. But then you're like, oh, that was like multiple hundred years. And yeah. like if I compare that to like the scale of my life, you know, it's it's things happen a lot more slowly, I think, than you sometimes realize. And sometimes very quickly. <laughs> yeah. That's a poorly paraphrased Lenin quote, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> no, but also like... Sometimes things happen fast and sometimes they happen slow. Yeah. And sometimes you don't realize till hindsight, like, how much was actually changing and how much of what was going on in the world was sort of, like, building or, or developing towards, like, some really fundamental changes. Like, I hear people talk about the failure of Occupy because Occupy, mm-hmm. I guess, didn't usher in the revolution. But, like... Also, like, like we were talking before I hit record, like just watched Bo Burnham, like, like say Marxist theory in a comedy (laughs) special on Netflix. And I don't Mm. think that would have happened if it weren't for Occupy. Like, so is Occupy really a failure? It didn't, it didn't spark like an entire worldwide revolution that like shifted us into like a new mode of production. No, but like Mm -hmm. it also completely changed the conversation that everybody's having. So like that's a success. Yeah, definitely. I think there's been sort of a series of various social movements that maybe from a very narrow perspective look like failures um, over the past like 10 years or so. But if you sort of look the look at it as this like developmental process of um, building, you know, the consciousness, like building class consciousness um, building consciousness against, you know, capitalism and ecological destruction and wealth inequality and so on. Um, I think people are like, people are talking about those things a lot more than they were, you know, mm-hmm. pre-Occupy. Um, and even if, you know, Occupy didn't have any demands and didn't win any of those non-existent demands, I think it's it's definitely propelled us into or helped propel us in, into a new era where a lot of those talking points are are just way more common and sort of a starting point where we can say, okay, we agree the 1% is exploiting the 99%. Like, now what? And, like, what's the next mode of analysis? What's the next thing we can do about it? And just sort of, like, keep moving from there. Keep moving. So the the takeaway from this episode, then, is uh, it's like Finding Nemo, just keep swimming. 
Yeah, just keep swimming. Okay. okay. <laughs> just keep organizing. Just keep, yeah, absolutely. Just keep organizing. Thank you so much, friends, for coming on today. It was uh, great to have you again. And yeah, I'm sure at some point in the future, I'll ask you again to be on. Yeah. But <laughs> Thanks for meantime. having me on. Lots of fun. <laughs> okay, cool. And thank you so much for listening at home. Um, see you in a couple weeks. All your week, you were someone's slave. Today you're a free man. If they tell you you can't, then you can. How can we imagine a world beyond prisons and police, borders and surveillance? Rustbelt Abolition Radio is an abolitionist media and movement building project based in Detroit, Michigan. Each monthly episode amplifies the voices of those impacted by mass incarceration and explores ongoing work in the movement to abolish the carceral state and racial capitalism. Tune in to Rustbelt Abolition Radio here on the Channel Zero Network and visit www.rustbeltradio.org to learn more.